Facebook. Okay. Welcome everyone. Thank you all for joining in conversation with historians, Black Lives Matter. This is the second part to the first part in the Black Lives Matter specific conversation. Uh, my name is Emma Scheinbaum. I'm the Communications and Development Coordinator here at the History Department at Columbia University. Um, and this event was co-organized with Saida Islam, who will introduce herself shortly. Uh, we just want to first thank the Department of History for their support in organizing and promoting this event. We're very excited about this panel series. Again, this is going, this is part of a series. Every month we'll be returning to topics of social injustice, history, and the current day. And we also want to thank uh, the Committee on Inclusion and Diversity within the History Department and Frank Garrity for their support and collaboration in preparing this panel series that we're very, very excited to initiate in our department and to share across uh, YouTube and Facebook and all those other lovely platforms. So I'm just going to get started about who everyone here is and why we're here. So this is, panel is a moment for us as historians and as members of the Columbia community and beyond to reflect on what is happening in the country and in the world with each other and with the world. Intention here is to create a space to have these conversations and make these connections across history, cultures, and people and connect all of what's happened to what's happening and today and figure out how to proceed and where to take action in the future. And this is essential, this, this talk, not only this learning, but also these conversations across fields and across backgrounds and experiences and uh, identities. It's essential in order to be able to recognize and address the systemic and experiential racism and anti-Blackness that is pervasive in every day in our community, both in academia and in everywhere, unfortunately. Um, so let's begin. Uh, Saida, if you could introduce yourself and our lovely panelists. Sure, thank you for that, Emma. My name is Saida Islam and I'm the Faculty Affairs Coordinator here in the History Department at Columbia University. It's my pleasure to introduce our panelists. Um, it's an honor to be among such distinguished scholars today. I'd like to start um, by introducing Professor Christopher Brown. Professor Brown specializes in the history of 18th century Britain, the early modern British empire, and the comparative history of slavery and abolition, with secondary interests in the age of revolutions and the history of the Atlantic world. Currently, he is investigating the European experience on the Atlantic coast of West Africa during the era of the slave trade. We're also joined by Professor Eric Foner, He's a DeWitt Clinton Professor Emeritus of History, special, specializes in the Civil War and Reconstruction, Slavery, and the 19th Century America. His book, The Fury Trial, Abraham Lincoln and the American Slavery, won the Pulitzer, Bancroft, and Lincoln Prizes for 2011. His latest book is Gateway to Freedom, The Hidden History of the Underground Railroad. We're also joined today by Professor Stephanie McCurry. Professor McCurry is a professor of history. She specializes in the American Civil War and Reconstruction, the 19th century United States, the American South, and the history of women and gender. She is also interested in the study of Confederate monuments and memory and slavery and its legacy in the United States. 
Lastly, we're joined by Bailey Yellen. She is a doctoral student at Columbia University studying history. She focuses on slavery, the transatlantic anti-slavery movement, and emancipation. Bailey's research interests include Black resistance in the Atlantic world and the circulation of abolitionist literature between the United States and the British Empire during the 19th century. With that said, we're going to jump right into the first question here. And the first question we have is for Chris. Although anti-racist and abolitionist thinking and discourse have been around and evolved throughout time, there has been a noteworthy swift shift of public opinion around these issues today, following the murder of George Floyd. How does an issue become a public issue and a basis for political change? Wow, well, it's a great question. It's a question I've been thinking about uh, for a very long time. Uh, let me just first say though, uh, thanks to both of you, Emma and Saida for organizing this. Um, colleagues in the history department, uh, Frank Garitti, head of the uh, Committee on uh, Diversity and uh, our chair, Adam Costo. It's great to have this initiative in our department. Um, I'm pleased to welcome you all here to listen in on this conversation. So, you know, we're in one of those moments where uh, it seems like opinion on a very old subject suddenly changes. Um, you know, there's nothing new particularly about uh, racial problems in policing. Uh, people have been talking about the problem of having Confederate memorials up for almost since the time they were put up decades ago. Um, but obviously we're in one of those, uh, those sort of conjunctures where things that have long in one way or another been uh, sufficiently acceptable to large swaths of the American public suddenly become controversial and unacceptable. Uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about just this very issue around uh, the issue of slavery and the Atlantic slave trade. Um, we live today with a consensus about not just the immorality um, of slaveholding, but also just the injustice of it in the sense that we cannot live with those kinds of practices. Um, that was a new feeling at the end of the 18th century. Um, people had recognized that there was something uh, morally problematic about slavery, but the sense that something could be done about it because the, uh, the, the, the value of slavery to so many um, you know, made it hard to enact political change. Obviously, enslaved men and women fought slavery from within, um, but they didn't have the sort of uh, power or influence to be able to overthrow the system themselves. And so when I think about that moment, and I think about this moment, um, I think about a couple of things that tend to shift the landscape a little bit. One is just committed activists, um, committed people who want to see um, you know, a, a change. But obviously that kind of commitment is often um, rarely enough. Uh, a second element is kind of a galvanizing incident or a kind of image or experience that has a way of crystallizing the issues so that people just can't miss them and confronts them with what they've been uh, looking at for a while, but found ways to ignore, apologize for, dismiss, treat as exceptional. Um, and that's obviously um, what has happened um, in reaction to the murder of George Floyd. There were similar things that happened in the late 18th century around um, abolition. But I think the other thing which is easier to miss, but I think is maybe even the most important 
are the kinds of uh, insecurities, fractures, uh, unhappiness in a culture where there is a sense that things are in a very deep sense, not right. Um, that the nation or the culture, society is on a very, on a track that's not acceptable to a large swath of the public. In the late 18th century, um, when slavery became a subject of political controversy, it was a crisis of the American Revolution, the need to get independence or the need to uh, defend an empire. And I think part of what's happening right now, there's nothing new about uh, the Confederate monuments. There's nothing new about, about policing. What is true is there's a great, obviously, with the pandemic um, and with the shortcomings of our federal government, I think that that's had a way of taking these issues that have always been there um, and created a sense of urgency that um, we can't be complacent anymore, given just how far off our country. Great, thank you. Um, and our next question will go to Bailey. Uh, Bailey, let's talk about black resistance uh, against <laughs> oppressive, sorry, that's my doorbell. Uh, black <laughs> resistance against oppressive structures goodness, uh, across oceans and throughout history. What similarities do we see in these resistance movements across time in Black Lives Matter, in the anti-slavery abolition movements and Maybe we can talk about communication and how that has evolved within those movements. Sure. Well, I first want to thank you, Emma, and Saida, and the CID for hosting this panel and asking me to be a part of it. Uh, it's a great experience to be on a panel with such eminent historians, and I'm lucky. I feel lucky to be here. So I think there's something to be said about the interracial nature of both movements, but. An important similarity that I see between the transatlantic anti-slavery movement as well as the current Black Lives Matter movement is really the centrality of Black activism. Um, in both cases, Black actors have taken on really public uh, leadership positions as well as being driving forces of the movements behind the scenes. When thinking about the transatlantic anti-slavery movement, I think it's important to note that uh, anti-slavery sentiment existed before the movement coalesced and black resistance on both sides of the Atlantic represented a um, particularly powerful critique of both slavery and the slave trade. Black resistance in the colonial period uh, took many forms, for example, literature and art and poetry, uh, which is something that I focus on. Authorship, I have found served a dual purpose for enslaved men and women. On the one hand, it allowed people to advocate for their own personal freedom, but also created a uh, critique of the system of slavery as a whole. We see this in people like Phyllis Wheatley and Frederick Douglass and a number of other uh, black authors. During the peak of anti-slavery organization in the United States in the 19th century, fugitive slaves as well as free blacks really kept anti-slavery sentiment alive on both sides of the Atlantic by producing texts and uh, going on lecture tours and raising money and, you know, uh, organizing committees to support the anti-slavery cause. 
I think the current Black Lives Matter movement is trying to honor this history by really describing itself self-consciously as a movement that was founded by and is really led by Black activists. Um, I think another similarity we see is that people then, as well as now, realize that there is a certain amount of danger that is associated with their activism for Black lives. Uh, that danger has changed than what it was in the 19th century. Uh, people in the 19th century didn't have to worry about, for example, catching a deadly illness while going out and protesting. But I do see a similarity in the fact that there is a recognition that uh, danger and violence are really real in these movements and they could have potentially devastating effects on individuals as well as communities. Great, thank you, Bailey. I have the next question here for Professor Eric Foner. In a recent NPR interview, I quote, you said the unresolved legacy of reconstruction remains a part of our lives and movements are for social justice that have built on the legal and political accomplishments of reconstruction and in the racial tensions that still plague American society. The momentous events of reconstruction reverberate in modern day America. End quote. Could you please elaborate on that for us? Yes, uh, and I will add my thanks first to Saida and Emma for organizing this uh, discussion. Um, before getting into that, I, I, while Chris was giving his answer, I was thinking what would be the equivalent sort of galvanizing event uh, like the murder of George Floyd in the run-up, you know, in the 19th century that sort of led a lot of people to suddenly change their minds, or at least to openly see the evils of slavery. And what occurred to me, maybe there are others, is the uh, caning of Charles Sumner, mm -hmm. the senator, the abolitionist senator from Massachusetts, who was assaulted by Preston Brooks, a congressman from South Carolina, on the floor of the Senate, uh, beaten very badly with a cane. And this, uh, this event sort of crystallized what many people had sort of vaguely been thinking of the slave power controls the government, the Southerners are really not, they don't act by the same civilized ways that we do. Anyway, I don't want to go too far into that, but it does seem that a, a particular act, maybe an act of violence, uh, concentrates people's attention in a way um, and can really change public sentiment very rapidly. And we, we've seen that, of course, now. As to Reconstruction, yes, I have devoted a lot of my uh, career as a scholar to studying Reconstruction. Uh, you know, this is the moment when uh, we tried in this country to uh, create, uh, for the first time, a, in, an interracial democracy to change a society based on slavery to one based on the principle of uh, citizenship regardless of race, of equal rights before the law for all. Um, where African-Americans for the first time were allowed to vote in large numbers, for the first time held significant public offices ranging all the way from the Senate and the House of Representatives down to uh, state legislators, sheriffs, court justices of the peace, etc., cetera, uh, et cetera. And, um, you know, it, 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 in the end, it didn't quite succeed, although it left this legacy, first of all, in the Constitution, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, 
which was never repealed, even though with the acquiescence of the Supreme Court, they were pretty much abrogated in the South during the long post-Reconstruction period of what we call Jim Crow. Um, but, um, you know, so looking back from today, the, the, so many of the issues that are still roiling our society are Reconstruction issues. Who should be a citizen of the United States? That, that was debated up and down the society in Reconstruction. Who should have the right to vote? Uh, that's being fought out in many states right now, as, as you all know. Uh, how to deal with terrorism, the Klan and homegrown American terrorism, which flourished uh, during uh, Reconstruction. Uh, and the, you know, I would just uh, finish by saying, you know, the, the overthrow or failure, although I don't really like to use the word failure because Reconstruction did have many accomplishments, even though many others were reversed. Um, but the, the ending of Reconstruction, let's put it that way, had a profound effect on the future course of American history in ways that very few historians actually uh, confront. Uh, imagine, let's just say, what would have been the situation if African-Americans in the South had retained the right to vote, all the, which was in the Constitution after Reconstruction, all the way in through the 20th century or late night, I mean, the New Deal would have looked completely different. Uh, it would the, this, the, the sort of white supremacist angle of the New Deal um, would not have been the case. African-Americans would have benefited from the uh, social security system and housing and all these other things which were then denied to them in the early days of those programs. Uh, eliminating a significant part of the American working class from any possibility of exercising political power shifted the whole spectrum of American politics to the right uh, with lasting legacies all the way through. I can't give you a scenario of what things would have looked like, but uh, I think we would have embarked on a much more progressive-minded uh, uh, set of social and political policies in the 20th century uh, than actually developed until much, much later. So, so we're still, my point is simply, we are still living with the sort of unfulfilled agenda of Reconstruction, uh, which is why I'm sure all the historians here say people need to know something about that period if they want to understand what's going on right now. Thank you so much for your response, Eric. Um, uh, I want to say if anyone has questions for the panelists, you can address them to specific panelists uh, when you submit them. If you're on Zoom in the Q&A section, on Facebook in the comments, and on YouTube in the comments as well, we will try to get as, to as many questions throughout this panel as possible. Um, but first, I have a question for Stephanie. Uh, so throughout history, uh, throughout the fight for emancipation and, or sorry, during the fight for emancipation and during the reconstruction era and still today, there seem to be varying definitions of freedom uh, from different groups. Uh, maybe we can speak to that. And if you could also speak to the white backlash to black reconstruction. Thank you, Emma. <clears throat> and hi everybody. So happy to be here today with my colleagues and uh, uh, everybody else uh, signing on and to see Bailey slide so naturally into her position uh, as a historian in this conversation is a really wonderful um, day. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, this question of what freedom is and what happened when it was extended and claimed by uh, uh, citizens, people of African descent in the United States is a huge question. And for me, and the backlash to that, and for me, the answer always starts with the before. It ha that's the natural historian's thing, is to go backwards. And for me, it begins by, begin by grappling with what slavery was and recognizing how, from my point of view, it's impossible to exaggerate what emancipation required. Or to put it another way, what it took to destroy slavery and establish freedom as a condition equally of all, of all Americans, regardless of race. And in every domain, it required that this system had lasted for more than 200 years. It, it structured everything from the family to the, to the labor force, to the polity, to the law. We should never underestimate what it required to strip that away, to break that down and replace it with something else. And the backlash was fierce. I mean, it was, it was predictable among white Southerners who had grown up uh, uh, for generations with the privilege of uh, a kind of identity of whether they called it whiteness or not, they might've called it of being free people, which was in, in essence, a definition and opposition to the people they saw every day enslaved in their own households and families and society. And so the, the backlash, the, 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 the unwillingness to reconcile themselves even to the simple fact of personal self-possession of emancipation, never mind the things Eric's talking about, equal rights, justice under the law, the right to vote, even the recognition that these people no longer belong to you uh, and that you no, no longer retain the same right to discipline them, whether you own them or not, just by virtue of being a white person in that society. So to me, you know, the, the, the answer begins there and um, generations of slavery had shaped the subjectivities of white Southerners and black Southerners. And it's a very difficult subject to grapple with, but um, even the simple act of saying I'm free and I'm now free to take my children with me and to join my wife where she works or vice versa, they could be, they could be murdered just for that act of insolence in claiming the right to physically move, uh, to claim their children as their own. So the backlash was um, immediate and unceasing. And I think, you know, at, a, at, a, at, a, at, a, at one level, it's a refusal to recognize African-Americans as part of the people with any rights at all. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that the back, Kedada Williams, this wonderful young African-American historian says that there, that, you know, there was everyday forms of violence. Like if you wouldn't take, if you wouldn't call your, your, your employer master still, you could get, you know, shot. If you insisted on being paid your wages, you could get beaten with the butt of a pistol or murdered. And then there's the extraordinary violence that got more organized that Eric already referred to a few years later that was already organized white supremacist um, movement, um, loosely organized, but terrifying. And, um, and it really shaped the conditions of uh, black freedom in those first years of reconstruction and made any assertion of freedom something you had to be willing to die for. And so I think that, you know, this is, we're still in this world where, and by the way, it wasn't just white Southerners. I mean, one of the things that I, I mean, Eric knows this, but one of the things that's so shocking is to re read what Northern Democrats would say in those moments too, in places like New York and New York City, 
So there's no place to hide from the reality. And that confrontation was primal and brutal and um, shaped all of the conditions of reconstruction. I mean, no matter what the law said, you had to enforce it. And you had to have the, Bailey already talked about this, the danger to the individual human being of insisting on those rights. Even the simplest of them could get you killed. So, you know, democracy and violence are, they're, they're the same thing. They're, democracy has to be able to survive the violence. And so many times in American history, it doesn't. And we backtrack. We, it, we give up. People back away. And I think we're at one of those moments again, as you all have already started to explain, where people are saying, well, not anymore, or not like this, at least, anymore. And we'll see what happens. But, you know, in that sense, and I'm already worried about the backlash. We can talk about that, you know, if we have time. Thank you, Stephanie. Our next question is for Eric. How is historical interpretation part of the ideology of the Jim Crow South? What people think about history matters. In this case, how so? Who is that question for? It's for, it's for Eric Phone. It's for you. Oh, okay. Sorry. No, I didn't know. Did you want me to repeat it? You know, well, I, it, it, we all believe that what people think about history matters. Otherwise, we wouldn't be historians, I suppose. Um, you know, in the case of slavery, Reconstru Civil War, Reconstruction, it matters very directly because uh, people sort of project uh, but too often their current sort of prejudices back into the past. The debate which Stephanie's been involved in, you know, about uh, Confederate monuments or the Old South, you know, if you believe that slavery was a benign and kind of not really oppressive institution, that's going to have uh, effects on how you, how you think today about people's uh, movements to claim greater rights. Uh, Reconstruction, you know, for a long time, um, the to corruption, misgovernment, black domination, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and that was part of the ideology of the Jim Crow South. I mean, the lesson of that was uh, if African-Americans gained, regained the rights they had lost, the so-called horrors of Reconstruction would repeat themselves. And this was sort of the this was sort of the uh, uh, final argument against any change in the Southern, in the Southern racial system uh, it, up into the mid and later 20th century that you're gonna have another reconstruction. So that, you know, now we no longer view reconstruction that way. We see it in a very positive light, but the idea that it was just a total disaster was part of a kind of a defense of white supremacy basically. So uh, the historical, interpretation was directed at the present day, that is the moment the historian was writing, as well as the actual history of uh, a century before. So, you know, clearing away that old view of Reconstruction was very, very important uh, to um, kind of rethinking the whole question of race, of the entitlement of African Americans to full rights uh, in this country, which was denied by historians uh, back in the early uh, 20th century. Yeah. I have a follow-up question for you, if that's okay. It's uh, here from uh, the Facebook chat. Um, let's pull it up here. 
Yeah. It says here, is the increase in white violence against Blacks part of a strategy to reinforce the white supremacist social hierarchy in the face of rising socioeconomic and political status of Blacks in America? That, I think, Eric, if, if you it's have a follow-up question with that, yeah, in relation to what you had just said. No, so that is directed I'm not sure what you mean by the rising incidence of violence. Certainly what Stephanie was talking about right after the end of slavery, there was a tremendous amount of violence in the South. And then all through the reconstruction period, as you said, it became more organized, became more political in a narrower sense, in the sense that about electoral politics, about office holding and things like that. Um, and yes, I mean, it is, it's just part of this backlash of uh, people not being able to accept the you know, I, when, I, when I talk about Reconstruction nowadays, I talk about the, it's not a phrase from that period, regime change. That's what they were trying to accomplish, what we would call regime change, a slavery-based regime being replaced by one based on, you know, equality. It's not so easy to do that. It's not very easy to do it at all after 250 years of slavery in this country. Um, and, that, and it's inevitable it was going to have a violent backlash. But violence then, you know, after the end of Reconstruction, violence did not end. Lynching, as we know, was widespread in the South from the 1890s well into the 20th century, uh, even though the political power of African Americans had been pretty much stripped away. Uh, violence continued as a mode of policing the system and enforcing uh, racial, you know, uh, mores of one kind or another. So yeah, I mean, all you can say is that the, the, I think there's probably a lot less violence today against African-American people, despite the, you know, George Floyd and these other incidents, than there was, let's say, uh, around 1900 uh, in, in this country. Thank you. Um, and thank you for the question that was submitted. Uh, so we'll be beginning now to incorporate them into our conversation. Um, I have a question for Chris. Um, we're interested in hearing the ways in which the anti-slavery movement was a global phenomenon that had emerged from a wide variety of ideologies and perhaps what that could teach us about talking about abolition now. Right. So uh, it's a complicated question and I'll try to sort of <laughs> ask about it. Try to provide, not provide a global answer. Right. <laughs> we obviously are in a moment where, you know, Black Lives Matter has attracted attention of following allies um, around the world. Uh, and, you know, in many ways that does echo some of the dynamics that occurred around anti-slavery, uh, especially in the 19th century. I think the thing which, you know, people watching have to keep in mind is that you know, the institution of slavery was a hemispheric system in an Atlantic wide system. You know, we focus on the United States understandably because that's where we live, that's where we are, that's where we're teaching and working. Um, but it's crucial to recognize that abolishing slavery meant in the end, abolishing it everywhere in the Americas where it was legal, which included a variety of Caribbean states, Central America, large swaths of South America, and most importantly, Brazil, where it was um, just as fundamental 
to the every aspect of the society and culture and economy, and economy as it was in the United States. So it, it had to be an international movement. Um, the only way that um, the Atlantic slave trade could be brought to conclusion was via an international movement. Since ships sailed from every European port, they visited dozens of different ports in West Africa and they, uh, you know, they d delivered uh, captive Africans to dozens of places in the Americas. So, you know, the international movements of today are really building up on the international movements of that earlier era. Um, and, and it's really crucial to recognize just how broad the problem is of white supremacy, just how broad the problem is of the ex economic exploitation of vulnerable peoples. Um, and, you know, there's more to say about it, but the only way that those institutions came to an end um, was actually out of the concert of a variety of different governments and out of activism from below, um, out of the inability to sustain the system because of resistance um, 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 to it from within. But I just wanna re, you know, what Stephanie said earlier is just so, so important. Um, this was not an easy thing to bring to an end. Um, you know, the anti-slavery movement took 80 years um, under its own terms to succeed. Um, and, you know, in aspects of it still haven't fully succeeded, obviously, as I'm thinking about white supremacy. So, you know, the task is really very large. Um, and as far as we have come, there's still so much, there's still quite a ways to go. Thank you, Chris. Our next question here is for Bailey. The connection between lynching during slavery and post-reconstruction and the lynchings happening today. Can you provide some historical context behind why this isn't new, why this hasn't stopped, and why this hasn't gotten more outrage and attention? Yeah, so to start off, I think we need to be careful about in what circumstances we use the word lynching. Uh, if we're too lax about it, then it loses its analytical value as well as its sort of direct association to violence and terror. Uh, for example, if you're the president of the United States and you find yourself in the midst of a um, impeachment inquiry, that's not a lynching and it shouldn't be referred to as a lynching. Um, with that being said, I think that it's important to say that um, the practices and meanings behind lynching has changed over time. In the antebellum period, it was a national phenomenon rather than a regional phenomenon. Um, and the victims of which could be white as well as black. In the South, it was often used as a tool to protect the institution of slavery. But in the West, for example, there were a number of crimes for which somebody could be lynched. The practice of lynching became more uh, racialized and more regional after the Civil War. During Reconstruction, uh, actual lynchings, as well as just, you know, the threat of being lynched, was a tool used by white Americans for uh, racial control, as well as a way to prevent free people from um, realizing a vision of freedom that included economic security, uh, the protection of one's family from violence, and the ability to um, you know, vote without, without the threat of violence and retribution and disenfranchisement. 
as Stephanie mentioned, there has been great scholarship recently talking about sort of the violence of the postbellum period. And even though lynching was an extreme form of violence, uh, free people experienced violence on a sort of daily and in an everyday encounters in the New South, merely for trying to exercise the same rights as their white neighbors. As we've seen, uh, lynchings haven't gone away, but I think it's important to note that the practices and the forms have changed. During Reconstruction and Jim Crow, lynching was oftentimes a sort of public event that was well-documented through uh, uh, pictures and whatnot. And now lynchings are much more shrouded in secrecy, which I think makes it easier for law enforcement as well as casual observers to not call it that, to say, you know, this is a suicide or not see it as part of a larger pattern. Uh, I'm deeply troubled to hear about these events that certainly seem to be racially motivated acts of violence. I think it raises questions about how do we prepare for the sort of inevitable backlash and how do we protect the gains that have been made by the Black Lives Matter movement and that will continue to be made? Thank you, Bailey. Um, Stephanie, so we've talked about how uh, historical interpretation is part of the ideology of the Jim Crow South. Um, and in our, some, in our previous conversation, we've talked about the psychology of like learning how to not feel ownership or uh, a privilege over another person and how generationally it, it, that just doesn't go away right away when emancipation happens. Uh, so perhaps could you speak to like the justifications and the rhetoric used by the new Jim Crow to be to fight the freedoms that technically were given? Um, well, I think um, you know, even amidst all the furor over the 1619 project and new so-called new versions of history that are uh, being promoted, maybe one of the things least well understood in the United States is um, how deep uh, the, and how broad the reach of pro-slavery thinking was. And um, it's, just, it's just an awful topic and it's a very unpopular one even now. Um, but if you think about what a worldview is, how people can develop values out of the way, out of the, the, the way they are raised as children, the way they live their lives, their relationships with other human beings and the justifications of their own profit, privilege, et cetera. Um, you, you know, you can't, suddenly, you can't write the 13th Amendment and wipe that out. And, you know, very few people have actually studied at least directly pro-slavery ideology, the way it continued to be articulated in the post-war period. I've read a few things about that. Religion, for example, in, in evangelical churches, it's, it's actually quite frightening if you, because they just deny that to them, slavery just should, should never have ended. And there were people who were still willing to say that within uh, denominations after the war. So there's definitely that, and that would be, be maybe on one extreme end. But even then you can see you know, like some of the uh, former slaveholders that I have studied who left long, you know, uh, diaries that allow you to see sort of their inner life and uh, glimpse elements of their inner life. One of the women I, I wrote about is by no means the worst. She came to 
embrace what you would kind of call like a kind of it was it was a kind of liberal view of race. They like, con would concede all kinds of things. African Americans have equal intelligence. They're capable of uh, great uh, development. Um, they 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 will have the right to to these rights uh, after a certain number of years of tutelage. And you get this kind of. I think that was one of the more common um, sort of uh, frameworks of racial thinking that emerged among. Uh, white white Southerners and white Americans after the war is that you concede a certain amount, but not all, but 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 not right now, and it's going to require education. It's going to require sort of like the British with their ideas of apprenticeship that people can't just be free; they have to be put in this period of sort of tutelage. And you know, by the late nineteenth century, this is in, inseparable from a sort of liberal imperialist uh, ideology that is incredibly powerful. Uh, in the British Empire and around the world, and um, uh, you know, there, there are many, there are very, there are lots of different variations of this, um, from you know, uh, from the right to the center to uh, in in the in the late nineteenth century. But I think that 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 question of how to defend the refusal to concede uh, the equality of African Americans and in in every realm of life. Um, there's endless justification for this. And, you know, and, and, and in many ways it becomes as slavery is no longer there to anchor that sense of hierarchy and organic order, Christian order, then they reach for more explicitly racial and biological explanations. I mean, Barbara Fields has written so brilliantly about this is that at the moment at which um, equality is conceded and political inclusion is promised, right then start to get the justifications for why certain people have to be accepted from that generalization. And, and so I think, you know, we know a lot about this and we know a lot about these justifications. And I think the American, I mean, the public is, if they really are go, working through their anti-racist uh, reading lists and they really are reading Kendi's, you know, books, his five or 600 page account of racial, uh, race, racist thinking in the United States, you know, you can get the like the, all the different late nineteenth century versions of this, um, but it's very, very powerful by the turn of the century. It hasn't lessened; it has intensified, and it's it 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 doesn't set the United States apart anymore. I think it, it puts them very much within the Kipling mainstream of the white man's burden, and um, you know, this infinite hierarchy of peoples of uh, all kind from superior to inferior. There, there's, you know, the chart is worked out by that point and it's quite detailed. Hmm. As a follow-up to that, we actually, I think have something that's quite relevant to uh, what you're talking about uh, from YouTube. Someone asked, how did the passage of the 19th Amendment giving white and black women in the South the right to vote affect the movement for black equality? You know, I don't really know too much about um, the suffrage movement in the South by the 20th century. I, I know a fair bit about it in the um, right after the Civil War and up on up through the the turn of the century. So I I, I can't really I can't really speak to that. That's fine. Um, um in in Reconstruction when the Fifteenth Amendment was ratified, which the barred states from denying you the right to vote because of race, but did not address the rights of women. Um, 
the phrase among abolitionists and others was, well, this is the Negro's hour, that is to say, the black man's hour, uh, and the women's rights movement should sort of stay quiet for the moment. Uh, that many of the feminists did not agree with that, of course. Fast forward 50 years to the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which said that states cannot deny you the right to vote because of sex. So, um, the thing has switched. In order to get ratification in the southern states, the feminist movement had to, in effect, agree that this would not actually enfranchise black women in the south. It did in the north. All the modes of, of uh, keeping black men from voting, poll taxes, literacy tests, uh, you know, or just understanding clauses, would also apply to black women. Uh, once they were supposedly enfranchised. So the status of black women did not change all that much in the South because of the gaining of the right to vote. Uh, in the North, very different. And as more and more <clears throat> African-Americans moved from the South to the North and the West, they did regain the right to vote, which they had lost in the South, uh, which changed American politics in significant ways. But uh, this is a very fraught and uh, complicated thing, and it uh, led to a lot of, you know, uh, <laughs> complicated debates uh, back and forth. Uh, Martha Jones, a PhD from uh, this department, has a book just coming out right now called Vanguard, which is about black women and their struggle for the right to vote. Uh, well worth reading on this, uh, on this question. Great. Thank you for jumping in on that, Eric. Uh, Saida, if you can come to the next question. Yes, the next question we have here is for Chris. Could you please help us put the United States Revolutionary Abolitionist Movement in the global context of abolition and revolution and speak to the lexicon of the word abolition? Okay. Um, with respect, by revolutionary, do you mean the era of the American Revolution um, or the revolutionary nature of anti-slavery? Because those are actually uh, <laughs> slightly two different things. Uh, I think whichever one you feel might be more <laughs> relevant. You know the most about it, so I feel yeah, like maybe so, you know direction you know, to take it in. You know, I mean, anti-slavery itself, which is to say, and I, and, and I want to be specific about this. I'm, I'm referring to those efforts by people who were no neither slaves nor slaveholders to overthrow an institution um, that slaveholders benefited from, and that enslaved men and women. Uh, were captured, and, I, and, and by those free people, I mean both black and white. Um, enslaved men and women have fought slavery since slavery existed, and you find evidence of resistance and uprisings as far back as the Roman Empire. So there's nothing especially surprising about that. Um, Anti-slavery itself is a revolutionary development in the effort to abolish the institution. I think the word abolish is actually really important because it really, it's not just so much about reform um, or finding ways to, as I've sometimes said at the age, ameliorate or to lessen or to mitigate or somehow improve. Um, what the abolitionists were self-consciously about was driving the institution off the face of the earth, at least in the places where they controlled it. Um, and, or they could have thought they could have some access and influence over it. Um, and that's a, that, that ambition is a very radical ambition to take a very old human institution and to say, 
you know, our goal is to make sure it doesn't exist anymore, anywhere. Um, so, you know, and I, I think in the way that it gets used today, um, it also has very radical, deliberately, self-consciously radical um, intentions, um, purposes, and motivations, radical in all of those ways, um, where you talk about abolishing something, you're not talking about trying to um, find ways to make it better, make it nicer, uh, ameliorate it, find some other way to substitute for it. But to, um, when you're talking about abolition, you're talking about actually destroying the institution um, in all of its forms, in all of the ways that it expresses itself. So, you know, I, I look at abolition and its continuities in that language as being a form of institutional, um, a campaign for, you know, for really destroying fundamental institutions and institutions, which in this case is, I think, um, you know, we look back on and we say that that's, you know, those are institutions that had to be destroyed. One of the, one of the challenges for abolitionists is making that case that institutions that we live with for a long time actually have no longer have any merit, um, utility or legitimacy. Thank you so much for your response. Um, this one is for Eric. Um, could you briefly, I know that uh, these are all topics that we could go on about for hours, I know, uh, but if you could try to briefly describe uh, the early Republican and Democratic parties and what they have become now, perhaps pointing out a few key points in the switch between them? Uh, yeah, this is a question close to my heart because um, all over the internet in uh, certain Republican Party, current Republican Party uh, websites, I am quoted a particular sentence out of my a book on Reconstruction where I said something to the effect that then, that's 150 years ago, the Ku Klux Klan was sort of like an armed wing of the Democratic Party. And this is quoted to show that uh, Republicans are actually more sympathetic to African-American rights than Democrats today. The Republican Party was founded in the 1850s in order to stop the westward expansion of slavery. It did not exist in the South until after the Civil War. The Democratic Party, I think uh, Stephanie mentioned this before, was the party of white supremacy, they explicit the language of politics today is not exactly elevated, but you would be very shocked if you read the utterly explicit racism of uh, northern, putting southerners aside, northern Democrats uh, in the Civil War era. So that this is a white man's government, white men must rule, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that continued after the Civil War. The Republican Party was the party of Lincoln, of emancipation. African-Americans identified where they could vote, always identified strongly with the Republican Party well into the 20th century. Uh, Democrats were the party of racism all the way in. Now, this begins to change really, I guess, in the New Deal, um, when even though uh, President Roosevelt had little interest in the civil rights issues, the African-Americans suffered so severely from the Depression that even though they were unequally distributed, federal relief programs benefited them enormously. And um, you began to get in the North uh, more African-Americans voting uh, with, the, uh, with the Democratic Party. Um, but, you know, into the 1950s and 60s, there were plenty of so-called liberal Republicans. I remember Jacob Javits, senator from New York, was well to the left on racial issues that large numbers of Democrats. Um, and the Democratic Party always had this 
white supremacist wing in the South. It became more and more untenable as a kind of um, alliance of Northern urban liberalism, which became increasingly liberal on race issues as well as others, and segregationist Southerners. Um, in 1952, uh, Adlai Stevenson, the Democratic Party candidate for president from Illinois and widely supported by Northern liberal intellectuals, chose as his running mate for vice president, John Sparkman, a racist segregationist Southern senator from Alabama. And that ticket sort of exemplified the weird conglomeration that was the uh, Democratic Party. But just to finish, um, I, I, in 1964, Barry Goldwater, who voted against the Civil Rights Act of 1964 in Congress, was the uh, Democrat, the Republican, was the Republican candidate. Lyndon Johnson, who was associated with the Great Society, etc., and had embraced the civil rights meeting uh, movement, was the Democratic candidate. And the positions of the parties were completely reversed. Vast numbers of blacks now voted Democratic, and the Republicans became in the South, certainly, and then widespread in the rest of the country, the party of white backlash, which we talked about. And Richard Nixon, with his Southern strategy to absorb the sort of George Wallace voters. So certainly by the 1970s, the more current uh, uh, alignment of Democrats based, you know, with all sorts of differences, but basically being the party of the black voter and of some uh, recognition of racial justice issues and Republicans with again, some exceptions uh, being increasingly the party of the white South and more generally white re voting resentment uh, in the entire country. And the main point is these parties have changed enormously since they were founded, since the, the 1850s, etc. And uh, they shouldn't use my quote in order to refer to politics of the year 2020. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, the next question is for Bailey. So we sort of want to highlight that abolition and the abolitionist movement and its mission to invest in community and care as it is today and in the past. Um, it's definitely a topic deserving of its own panel. So we're going to do just that in the coming months. So stay tuned, everyone. Um, however, we just sort of wanted to start to scrape the surface uh, during this discussion today. So um, can we break down what abolition, abolition discourse is and goals were in Revolutionary War and Civil War eras? Um, could you speak to the discourse of anti-slavery abolition during the Revolutionary War era and its relationship to police and prison abolition today? Um, we did get some similar questions to this in the chat uh, as well from Facebook. So we sort of just kind of hope that you can answer it and uh, yeah, so. Sure. Um well, I'm going to focus on sort of the effects of the Revolutionary War in the American context. Uh, Professor Brown could talk much more deeply about its effects in the British Empire. He's written a, a wonderful book that details that uh, very, very extensively. Um, so I would say that the Revolutionary War marked a significant moment in the history of the anti-slavery movement. Um, in part because in the context of war, slavery be, was shown to be a, uh, 
political liability as well as just a moral problem. Um, this was demonstrated to the American colonists, for example, when the British army offered to, uh, to liberate slaves who were willing to leave their masters and fight for the British empire. Ultimately, this demonstrated to colonists that uh, enslaved people were willing to fight and sacrifice their lives in the pursuit of freedom, which would, of course, um, come up again during the Civil War and would prove to be a very decisive uh, reason for why the Union Army was successful in the war. Um, after the Revolutionary War, certain anti-slavery measures gain currency as possible solutions to um, address the problems of slavery that were revealed during the Revolutionary War. Activists in Britain sort of focused their attention on abolishing the slave trade, while in the United States, abolitionists helped push Northern states to pass gradual emancipation measures. Um, even with these wins, there were those within the movement who didn't see these measures as going far enough and were pushing for more radical demands, uh, which I think is a connection to what we see going on in the Black Lives Matter movement now. Um, there are you know, so many internal discussions occurring, current, occurring right now, and there's sort of a lack of uniformity about what the goals of the movement should be, how to achieve those goals, and really who should be involved in those conversations. I think there are those within the movement who are primarily interested in reform, those who want abolition of, say, the police and the prison system, and those who are hoping maybe that reform will eventually lead to abolition when, you know, our society is more able to accept that as an outcome of the movement. Um, so as we sort of continue to see the Black Lives Matter movement unfold, uh, we'll have to keep track of these different sort of tactics that are being expressed by activists and how the movement alters its agenda to um, you know, incorporate some of these ideas and reject some of these ideas depending on what new information comes in. Thank you, Billy. Chris, would you li like to add anything? Um, there are so many great questions out there. I don't know that I could really um, improve on what Bailey just said. Uh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna let her have the last word on that subject. Okay. Um, Emma, I believe if you, we have another question here for Stephanie. Yes, we do. Um, uh, Stephanie. Uh, why do you believe it's important to study institutional histories of racism uh, and perhaps speaking to how it might inform our future action? And you actually mentioned, this is related, in our conversations you've talked about the paramilitary forces in Portland right now and how this issue is, you refer to it as the script and I was wondering if you could perhaps connect that as well. Um. <clears throat> Yeah, I think you, you can even see just from this conversation today, on the one hand, you have this, we can, do, we can document this history of black activism, as Bailey said at the outset in the face of violence, and we can document these repeated, the repeated uh, uh, impact of, of violence, including 
long periods of paramilitary violence in the United States. So this is just part of the history and it doesn't sit very easily, I think, with people's conception of the American past as a democratic society, but it's, it's a very, it punctuates the history. Um, and it was always part of uh, these, of, of a backlash, of these moments of backlash to the expansion uh, of the polity and the inclusion, the extension of, of, of African-American uh, rights and, and professional advancement and, and every, every possible way. So when I look at what's going on in Portland, it's, to me, it's terrifying because um, there, there, have been long, there have been periods of American history, like the one Eric and I write about Reconstruction, where the Klan is operating for a very long time with impunity. It, the, the local law enforcement can't bring it to account at all. And then there's a moment when the federal government steps in and cracks down on it, and it works. It, they don't keep at it long enough, so it'll spring back up once they take the foot off the neck. Um, but I, I am hard pressed to think of another moment when the forces of uh, violence, of paramilitary violence are literally authorized by the administration, by the executive, by the federal government. And, um, how about the, uh, when federal agents went into Northern cities to try to grab fugitive slaves? True, that's and very true. Sometimes but, violent resistance and right. battles in the streets over whether to. Uh, that, that I've been thinking about this also. That struck me as an analogy to what's going on today, where the federal government comes in to deprive people of their rights, and then there is local resistance to that. Uh, That's really true. But with the Portland thing, what I was mentioning to Emma and Saida uh, earlier is the thing that struck me immediately about Portland is what it means when the federal government sends in these unmarked actors, these paramilitary actors, uh, 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 to, to quell disorder. So they're the forces of law and order, but it's quite clear that what they're actually doing is instigating the disorder. And this is a very old script in American history. I, 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 there's not many cases, as I just said, where I can think that it's the, uh, the, the, the president and the federal government that's, that's doing it. But in secession, when, when white Southerners want, uh, elites wanted to convince uh, white Southerners that they had to leave the Union, they created this incredible specter of invasion, of self-defense. They put militias marching around all the state houses and the courthouses and everything else. Uh, they cre uh, then in the, the Ku Klux Klan always accused the Union Leagues of, of producing, of, that they were simply the forces of law and order coming in to reassert uh, the proper order. Um, so this business of, um, of uh, creating disorder and then claiming to control it is, an to me, an extremely dangerous one to see. And I suspect there's very important transnational um, logic to this. Like if you look at, at, at this, um, you know, it's, it, this kind of policing comes from counterinsurgency uh, military tactics anyway. Carl Jacoby, our colleague, has just written a wonderful op-ed in the LA Times on this, what it means to bring border patrol agents, you know, who have always been authorized to behave uh, in, in ways that would not be acceptable deeper inside the United States. They're allowed to behave in that way on the border. And now they're being deployed, uh, you know, in Portland. That's a lot of who those, um, who, who those armed, mil the, the, those military units are. So I just find that 
I find that, uh, you know, this is like, um, unmar it's like Yugoslavia and the wars in Yugoslavia. There's, this, there's just these patterns of unmarked uh, semi, paramilitaries are semi-official actors. In this case, they're official actors, but they're not, they're not transparent. They're not being deployed in a transparent way. So it has a paramilitary quality to me. Maybe that's exaggerated or nervous on my part, but um, yeah, this script of uh, in, in creating the disorder and then claiming to be uh, uh, controlling it just seems very dangerous and very much the moment we're in now. I, I saw today in the news that they, uh, they're going to withdraw, um, which is really interesting um, because that means something. The public is not supporting this, it would be my guess. Um, but I just think it's, it's something really important to keep our eye on that has meaning for the whole democracy um, that, that, the, that the federal government can act like this. And th this question, will citizens tolerate it? Hopefully the answer is no. And maybe we see that, maybe already we've seen that. That would be, that would be important. Thank you, Stephanie. We're getting in uh, a lot of more follow-up questions and I hope you guys don't mind. We are uh, five minutes over our time, but we have another question here for Eric. You've discussed the varying narratives around reconstruction era history we are taught versus the one that is truthful. Furthermore, you've specifically discussed political equality versus economic equality that was present in the Reconstruction era. Could you please expand on that and connect it to the present? Yeah, well, uh, you know, you might say that Reconstruction was a political revolution, but it was not accompanied by another economic revolution. The end of slavery is already an economic revolution, but as we all know, people, people who even don't know much about the history have heard the phrase 40 acres and a mule, which sort of symbolizes the aspiration or demands of the former slaves for some kind of economic foundation, land, 40 acres of land uh, in an agricultural society so that they would have, if not economic equality, at least an economic foundation for the freedom they have uh, now acquired. Um, it didn't happen. Land was not distributed, even though some people like Thaddeus Stevens and others proposed it in Congress. And the result was that even though uh, the former slaves were empowered with civil rights, political rights, uh, economically, they were uh, lacking in, you know, economic wherewithal, which made them uh, more vulnerable. So um, political democracy went a lot further than economic democracy. One might say that there's an analogy between that and the civil rights era, which is sometimes called the second reconstruction, where the, you know, the, the civil rights acts, the voting rights act, these rights that had been taken away a long time ago were reestablished. Re uh, but the, you know, by as, as people sometimes forget, when Martin Luther King was shot, it was at a strike of, uh, sanitation workers, not a civil rights march. Um, the freedom budget, which the civil rights movement began putting forward in the late 60s, called for massive spending in order to, um, uh, you know, uplift those uh, non-white uh, people of color who had been uh, discriminated against for so long. But again, it didn't go nearly as far as it should have. Uh, so um, so the, 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 the disjunction between political advance and yet economic uh, failing to meet the economic crisis 
of black America, um, you know, is, it's happened more than once in our history. Um, maybe we need a third reconstruction today, which will look at these, the economic plight of uh, people of color in this country. There is talk about that now much more than there was because of the massive demonstrations that have taken place. But uh, how to address those things is, of course, a big political issue. But um, yeah, that's another reason why Reconstruction is important to uh, understand. Thank you, Eric. We have a question here from YouTube, and it's for any panelists that would like to answer it. It says, could any of you speak to the comments made by Tom Cotton about the founders' perception of slavery as a necessary evil, and perhaps to what extent that belief, if true, held out beyond, beyond uh, abolition? Senator Tom Cotton is supposed to be the intellectual vanguard of the Republican Party, which is a sad commentary uh, on that party. But, um, you know, he has introduced a bill to ban the use of the Times' 1619 project from schools. Frankly, I wish they would try to ban one of my books. This would be the surest way to get on the bestseller list. Um, but, um, you know, uh, without going into a long discourse on the 1619 Project, because we don't have the time right now, uh, there's very little in there that is surprising to most historians today. The fact that slavery is foundational to the creation of the British North American colonies, that slavery was the core of the economy in this country for many, many years, and certainly in the pre-Civil War decades, um, this is nothing new and that slavery has long legacies going into the present day. But a lot of people find it hard to accept that. One can debate this point, this little sentence in one of the essays in there. Um, what's weird about what uh, Senator Cotton said was, remember, well, the fact is slavery was a necessary evil, which was at the foundation of the new nation. That's actually what the 1619 Project said, take away take away uh, necessary evil, they didn't think it was necessary, but um, that it was at the foundation, uh, Cotton is saying that as well as the 1619 people, which is kind of weird. I don't know who wants to ban it. But I think it's a, you know, it's a useful educational project. People can debate it, can criticize it. That's the way it should be. Uh, but if it, to the extent that it directs attention to the central role of slavery and the legacies of slavery in our history, uh, it's, that's all to the good. I would just add Oh, sorry, Chris, go ahead. It's an extraordinary statement because it's, it's one of the streams of pro-slavery thought yeah. uh, in the antebellum era. I mean, so I'm sure yeah. you're going to say that. Um, you know, I also just want to observe that this notion that some must be exploited and suffer um, horribly and their descendants for generations on end for the sake of uh, economic progress um, for the sake of nation building. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think it's actually worth looking at some of the, um, if I could editorialize, mindset around, uh, we got to get everything back open. If people die along the way, well, we can't stand in the way of progress. Um, you know, I think this notion of necessary evils, um, it almost always comes from folks who uh, don't think that they're going to be the subject of evil, um, don't think that they're going to be hurt by whatever uh, others regard as necessary. And what's necessary is almost always some degree of material comfort 
um, and some degree of uh, often luxury rather than uh, the sheer survival um, that would make necessity actually have some weight. So I, I think it's extraordinary that somebody could use words like this um, that haven't been bandied around in that way since the 1830s or 1840s. It isn't even clear, I mean, I, it, it isn't even clear that he understands that it's an explicitly pro-slavery statement. I mean, it was an early Republican, early Republic era sort of defense of slavery, which attempted to claim or retain some moral um, position, moral high ground by saying, well, if we could get rid of it, we would, but it's necessary, we have to keep it. There's no nation without it, which as Eric said, is exactly what the 1619, if, if all he's saying is it's a foundational institution of American life, agreed. But the language that he's borrowing, has he been called on that? I mean, this, this, isn't, this is a pro-slavery talking point. And it went from necessary evil to positive good. Okay, it got worse. That's but right. necessary evil, the horizon of getting rid of it was never. And I also just want to point out that we are getting harassed on the chat. And yes. um, uh, somebody has, uh, I don't know if they've hacked it because it's coming from another, um, it's coming in under, uh, it's anonymous. And I don't like being followed in events by anonymous harassers. So I just want to point that out, that we cannot, we cannot sit here and talk as if we're having an intellectual conversation. Well, it's quite clear to me that um, the same people who have harassed me for saying things before are on here doing the same thing. Right. Oh. That's very unfortunate, especially when we're attempting to have a intellectual conversation about very important topics. Um, so I'm gonna try to see if we can uh, disable the, the question. Yeah, I think, I think those questions were actually sent through Facebook comments, so. Um, There's also some anonymous questions that were coming in through the- Well, Zoom. this conversation is meant to be uncomfortable and we're meant to be breaking these barriers of uh, taboo, I suppose, but um, I'm glad we're addressing them in a productive way. Um, and I'm, I'm really appreciative, Chris, that you highlighted how Tom Cotton's comments were pro-slavery and it wasn't subtle. <laughs> um, and to follow up on that, I, I, I have seen you uh, in a lecture, Chris, talk about, um, make a distinction between the abolitionists and the military emancipators. And I really want, would be, appreciate you addressing that distinction and perhaps the decision Lincoln made was not a moral one, but rather a politically strategic one, or maybe you're the expert here. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on that distinction. Yeah, I mean, I'm not the expert on Lincoln um, and I wouldn't uh, dare make any kind of judgment about uh, his mindset or purposes without um, you know, turning the, uh, the issue over to Eric. I will say this though, that you know, the, I, I referred earlier to just how extensive um, slavery was in the Americas. Um, at one point, it existed legally everywhere from Halifax, Nova Scotia to Buenos Aires um, in present day Argentina. I mean, this is not, this institution was everywhere. And in many situations, it came to an end or it was put on the path to extinction, as we say, in the aftermath, either caused by or the aftermath of military conflicts. Um, where wars in one way or, or another made slave holding um, untenable, uh, impractical, or embarrassing. 
So, you know, it's, there were obviously, there were abolitions that were, I may say peaceful, that what happened through legislative processes. Um, but for the most part, they tended to occur when you think, look at it hemisphere, hemispherically through somewhat, um, you know, moments where society and politics were coming apart and the, and the, and the destruction of slavery was a part of that process. But I also don't think there has to be a firm distinction between military abolition and sort of the moral argument. Um, we see this happening on the ground during the Civil War, for example, where it would make it made military sense to emancipate, emancipate uh, fugitive slaves that the army came across. But that also aligned with a moral argument where soldiers actually interacted with fugitive slaves and came to realize sort of uh, the legitimacy of the moral argument. So I think that the two can 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 align in, in certain um, circumstances. The one thing that I would add to that, where I do think it's important to understand what it means if emancipation is embraced institutionally or politically as a military project, is that the consequences for men and women are very, very different. Um, this is a fundamentally gendered way of accomplishing emancipation, and it has meaning and it has an afterlife. If, if, you, if black soldier, if, if the story is that black soldiers earned emancipation by military service, then every woman, black women were not part of that fight, fight for, we've had terrible trouble telling that story um, about emancipation being a far broader struggle than what was involved and intersected and aligned with the Union armies uh, or, or the Lincoln administrations. Um, project. So I think there are times when I, I completely agree with you, Bailey, that you can't neatly separate the moral from the from the um, um, military necessity argument. Um, even I think for someone like Lincoln, um, but uh, it has serious consequences. And I, I learned so much from Chris of the anthology Chris edited years ago with Phil Morgan on this question because the pattern's pretty clear that a lot of these emancipations happen during war, and that's really meaningful and how we got so long without thinking about what it meant is really, you know, kind of a, a reminder of why it's good to have some feminist historians around, I think. Well, I, uh, I say absolutely at the same time. <laughs> I just wanted to say absolutely on, on what Stephanie was saying about having feminist historians around. We actually just got a few comments and saying um, they really appreciate uh, your scholarship from a, a woman's perspective, Stephanie, despite the, 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 the mean questions and comments that came in. That's, because, that's only because I write about the Confederacy. Yeah. They're, they're also after Eric over here for being too, too pro-Lincoln, so. <laughs> well, uh, we are almost half an hour over, so uh, we should let you all go, but I want to thank everyone here who is attending and submitted, uh, submitted productive questions, and we, again, this is a series, so look for us. We're going to be uh, hopefully doing a panel that centers on immigration and its relation in history, but also to the issues that are going on today, so uh, look out for that notification, and if anyone wants to make any closing remarks, you're welcome to do so now. But I just want to say thank you again to everyone who participated in this, especially uh, Christopher, Bailey, Stephanie, and Eric, and Saida for co-organizing this with me, the department for supporting this, and CID for their support and sponsorship as well. Thank you.
Thank you so much. And there will be a recording of this available shortly. Great. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.